This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In a rather unusual fashion, we must announce to you that we will only be having half a show today. That's because at about 5.30, KDVS's sports department will be commencing a broadcast of the California Aggies' first football game of the season. I must say this correspondence uh, record watching Calagy football dates back to the 1970s, watching future 49er quarterback Mike Morosky spearheading uh, Aggie efforts. So we're here for the next 29 minutes. And with no time to lose, we better jump right into how we like to start the show, which is with On This Date in History. Our date today is August 30th. We would note that it was on August 30th in the year 30 BC that Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, lover of Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony, took her own life following the defeat of her forces against Octavian, the future first emperor of Rome. Due to the fact that these events were well chronicled and they represent one hell of a soap opera, this is pretty well known even to people who have not studied history. At some point when we get around it, we're going to quote from the uh, Vanity Fair piece done on the epic failure of the Cleopatra movie of the 1960s, which made Liz and Dick household names. And for those of you too young to remember, that was Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And actually, that whole soap opera of Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, that, that's something we should probably do a future segment on, by God. Mark that down, Mr. McMillan. It was on August 30th in the year 1146 that European leaders convened to outlaw the crossbow in the hope that by banning the weapon, wars would end. But alas, crossbows continued to be used until firearms replaced them in the 16th century. And you know, I know that uh, this show's been on the air for a while because it's some incarnation. I'm not sure how many years ago we aired on August 30th, and I told the story related to that particular item, which was that while touring Italy back in high school with my folks, we went to a museum. I'm not sure where. It might have been Florence. might have been Rome. I think it was Florence. Whereupon our Italian guide pointed to a crossbow on the wall and said words to the effect of, crossbow is a medieval version of atomic bomb. Everybody want to ban it, but everybody want to use it. Which is actually, I think, a pretty accurate parallel. Red Letter Day in music history, for on August 30th in the year 1881, Clement Adler of Germany patented the first stereo system. Listed in 1893, Mrs. Grover Cleveland became the first wife of a U.S. president to give birth in the White House when she delivers a girl named Esther. Now, I know Esther must have had a sister, Ruth, because baby Ruth, daughter of President Grover Cleveland, was later claimed to be the inspiration for the candy bar of the same name. Some found this to be suspicious because the bar came out during the height of popularity of baseball slugger Babe Ruth. In fact, the story of baby Ruth being the inspiration of the candy bar is an example of one of those amazingly cockamamie bits of (laughs) constructed falsehood that somehow passes muster. I believe to this day the Mars Company or whichever candy bar company it is still is sticking to that story. Why would they do this? Well, to capitalize on a famous name and then not have to pay royalties. It was on August 30th in 1901 in Scotland that Hubert Cecil Booth patented the vacuum cleaner, which he created by reversing the action of a dust-blowing machine. 
Of course, if Mr. Booth had really been on top of his game, he could have patented the leaf blower at the same time. And finally, it was on August 30th in the year 1922 that one of the world's most familiar American ragtime jazz tunes was recorded in New Orleans by the Rhythm Kings. The song was Tiger Rag. And by the way, I think we know what we're going to end this segment with. Yes, in light of the fact that we're going to be cutting away for football, this is going to be one prolonged segment. Our quote of the day is, That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And yes, we note with great sadness the passing of Neil Armstrong. But I think that the saddest aspect of uh, the great American hero's passing is the fact that the misquote of what he said when he stepped down onto the moon is what people have been recalling. If I have to hear, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind one more time, I I just think I'm going to scream. Man and mankind are the same thing. Well, at least in 1969 vernacular. Apparently what happened was a microphone glitch prevented the A from getting through to Houston and the rest of the world. And it's true, it's not there on the tape, it's what everybody heard relayed to them, but, you know, they could have corrected it so that we wouldn't have to be correcting it here on Radio Parallax. (laughs) There's actually been some controversy over this as to whether Neil just flubbed the line as he stepped down onto the lunar soil. But audio engineers have gone back and listened to it and found that apparently the impulse of that sound is there. It just didn't get transmitted properly. We'll talk about this again when we do the obituary for Neil Armstrong, which we will not do on today's program. And by the way, Mr. McMillan totally backs me up on this one. Which totally makes up for that time I was trying to impress a certain gal. And, and, I, and I guess I did get a little bit carried away because when that space shuttle landed and I wasn't on it, well, there was hell to pay. Actually, I stole that line from Gary Shandling. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. Uh, but our quip of the day, which may be appropriate during the convention of Republicans taking place down in the South, would be the legendary statement by Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor. We've used it before, but by God, we're going to use it again today. Said Bismarck, People never lie so much as after a hunt, during a war, or before an election. Our joke of the day is as follows. A cop spotted a car weaving down the road and pulled it over. He walked up to the car and saw a nice-looking woman behind the wheel. There was a strong smell of liquor on her breath. He said, ma'am, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you a breathalyzer test to determine if you're under the influence of alcohol. So she blew up the balloon and he walked back to check it at the police car. After a couple minutes, he returned to her car and said, Well, ma'am, it looks like you've had a couple of stiff ones. To which she replied, You mean it shows that too? And our stat of the day comes from the Knights of Columbus Marist Poll, which says that 78% of Americans are, quote, mostly frustrated, unquote, by the negative tone of political campaigns. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
According to the Week magazine, it was a good week several weeks back for New Zealand pole dancing. Sort of. With this item. The local council in Auckland, New Zealand, reported, this is in early August, that prostitutes have destroyed some 40 traffic signs in the past 18 months by using them to perform pole dances. Evidently, the damage has cost taxpayers dearly. That's according to the city council member Donna Lee. This is caused by streetwalkers using the poles to advertise their wares to passing motorists. Said Lee, the poles are part of their soliciting equipment, and some of the prostitutes are big, strong people. Well, I guess so. Was on the other hand, a bad week some weeks back for reading with the news that the Weekly Reader, a staple of American classrooms for generations, is going to disappear soon. Scholastic, which bought the 110-year-old newspaper in February, is ending its run. Read by two-thirds of U.S. grade school students at its peak, Weekly Reader now has fewer than one million subscribers. Having grown up with the Weekly Reader... This makes me sad. And finally, it was kind of an ugly week for achieving equality of the sexes with this item, which is that a former Minnesota Senate aide who was fired after having an affair with the Senate Majority Leader, Amy Koch, is suing the state for gender discrimination. Michael Broadcorp's lawsuit claims that similarly situated female legislative employees have been allowed to keep their jobs despite intimate relationships with male legislators, and that he was fired, in effect, for being a man. And yes, that actually did come from the Only in America file from the Week magazine, which we relabeled for good reason. Our disgrace of a legal system, because the items generally fit both columns. All right, we need to talk about the Republican convention, but yeah, we don't have that much time today. Let's wait till it's over and do a recap. But here's one little piece I think we should talk about, which came from Newsweek a few weeks ago, noting that attempting to control protests during the GOP convention, Tampa, Florida has banned possession of certain items near the event, such as nunchucks, lumber, and pipes, also water cannons and super soakers, also BB guns and air rifles, Also, gas masks and face coverings. In addition, Tampa's also banned portable shields. Also, light bulbs, glass bottles, and ornaments. And rope, wire, chain, and tape longer than six feet. Now, we would point out that there were some people that wanted to ban guns. Fortunately, the cool head of Governor Rick Scott rejected that ban. So if you're planning to go down to Tampa, Florida for the festivities, remember, no super soakers, no chain longer than six feet, no light bulbs, but you can pack your Glock pistol. This is a great country or what? Here's an item from the Sacramento News and Review we just love and have to repeat. Piece by Aaron Carnes was titled, Eat a Cricket, Save the World. Notes that when former college roommates Pat Crowley and Dan O'Neill decided to create chapel bars, 
which are energy bars made of milled crickets, it wasn't to shock people. It's because they believe that crickets were a more environmentally friendly choice. They're rich in protein and, comparatively speaking, require much less grain to produce protein than cows or pigs. Less grain means less water usage, and eating crickets could be a viable solution to reducing our carbon footprint while you save some water. The bars are only available online and are available in two flavors. Thai, which is coconut, lime, and ginger with your crickets, or Chaco, which is dates, chocolate, and peanuts with your crickets. Noted Carnes, they actually taste good, not at all like bugs. Adding that only a small amount of insect flour is required to meet the needs of 6 grams of protein. This is something we wish to know more about. All right, we do want to say just one thing about uh, the Republicans, given the conventions going on. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul was uh, set to use his primetime speaking spot at the convention to urge party members to be more open to scrutinizing military spending, a position that reportedly puts him in the minority within the GOP. Rand Paul made those remarks last Sunday when he addressed thousands of supporters at a rally for his dad, described as former Republican presidential candidate. I don't think he ever gave up, did he? Maybe he did. And Texas Representative Ron Paul. Said Rand Paul before the convention, one of the messages I will give to them is that Republicans need to acknowledge that not every dollar is well spent or sacred in the military, and we have to look for ways to make every department accountable. Noted Chris Moody on uh, Yahoo News, both Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney and his running mate, Wisconsin Representative Paul Ryan, have vowed to increase defense spending if elected, which is a heck of an idea when you realize that the U.S., in its defense spending, now outspends the next 16 nations on Earth. That's for sure. We might outspend everybody. I hear, I hear that stated, too. Now, you may have noticed that you sometimes never quite know what to expect on Radio Parallax. There, of course, is a good reason for this. The host of the program, that being yours truly, frequently has no idea what the hell he's going to talk about before we sit down to produce this program. And I would add that does appear to be a poorly kept secret. But I do feel a bit stuck today, being that we're going to be preempted and all, so I'm not sure which pile of material I should jump into. So let me just grab one at random which will be a humorous piece from Mental Floss, titled 20 Things You Didn't Know About Autopsies. Here's one from the Bright Idea file. Apparently it was 18th century autopist Giovanni Battista Morgani who introduced the idea of matching autopsy observations to pre-death clinical symptoms so that autopsies could inform not just anatomy, but also diagnosis and treatments. Hey, what a concept! But noted the Mental Floss piece by David Freeman. Hospitals today don't like performing autopsies. They cost a lot of money, they tie up the pathologists, and they often indicate that the doctors had blown the diagnosis, sometimes fatally. Well, I would add, don't you think that's important to know? I remember when I was back in medical school and one of the pathology instructors was lamenting the fact that uh, even then, almost 30 years ago, autopsies were becoming less and less frequent. He was stressing how important it was to know what people really did suffer from or die from so you could better, in retrospect, improve diagnostic abilities. When he made this point to the uh, chief resident at the hospital, a rather notable horse's ass, 
The resident's response was, well, we know what our patients die of. Yeah, well, I'm sure a lot of times you do, and I'm sure a lot of times there's some surprises you should find out about. Yes, make no mistake about it. Radio Parallax is pro-autopsy. Let's do some historical uh, perspective on this piece. Back in 1912, Boston physician Richard Cabot analyzed autopsies and claimed then that some diseases were being misdiagnosed at an alarming rate of 80%. Worthy of noting that in 2005, a study in histopathology suggests that doctors still misdiagnose fatal diseases about a third of the time. To which I would add, it's a tough job, okay? We're doing the best we can. Which I would add, as always, it is an art and not a science. This might be a good time to note that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But it is an art and not a science. I don't care what anybody says. But uh, my favorite item among the 20 things you didn't know about autopsies is number 16, which is that the precision blades of surgical tools designed to minimize the risk of accidental cuts are sometimes shunned in autopsies in favor of cheaper pruning shears. Yes, the kind sold in hardware stores. All right, randomly chosen item number two. Piece by John S. Marshall from the Sacramento Bee. An island offering a secluded beach, promises of great fishing and stunning views of the San Francisco skyline, is up for sale and at a discount. Red Rock Island, a six-acre mass of rock tucked away in the northern part of San Francisco Bay. And dear listener, you have surely seen this island as you've driven over the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge. It's owned by a man named Mac Derning. It's now being offered up for under $5 million. Just earlier this year, it was put on the market at $22 million. Noted the piece, realtor Steve Higby has said that mineral rights for the property, which contains manganese in its rocky outcroppings, are negotiable. To which he's added that if and when the island is sold, the new owner will have some unique opportunities. It's just six miles north of San Francisco. It's just off the south side of the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge. It's not just off the beaten path. It's not on any path. In fact, it doesn't even appear on some maps. Higby, you just have to love this guy, points out that the new owners would also enjoy great fishing and a distant view of the America's Cup race when the event comes to San Francisco in 2013. Yeah, yeah, with emphasis on the distant. In fact, since I think Angel Island is in your way for most of the pathway these boats are going to be taking, well, uh, I don't know. This is, this is really some marketing here, isn't it? Anyway, there you have it. We do hope that some listener raced Radio Parallax will uh, take a look at the map win the lottery, and go out there and buy Red Rock Island. All right, here's what I guess is random item number three from our potpourri segment today. This comes from USA Today, a piece by Oren Dorrell. Notes that now that Congress has lifted the ban on slaughtering horses, companies plan to open horse slaughtering plants in several states, but animal rights activists say they face a tough ride. Apparently businesses have filed applications in New Mexico and Missouri, and they plan to open other facilities in Wyoming and Oklahoma. Horse slaughter advocates, well, there's a label for you. Horse slaughter advocates want to produce jobs in lean meat that some consider a delicacy for dinner tables. That's both in the U.S. and abroad. Animal rights groups promise legal obstacles and public protest to using horses as food animals. 
Opponents of this plan say that slaughtering horses is akin to slaughtering a pet and is morally repugnant. I gotta tell you, I'm not seeing the big difference between slaughtering and eating a horse and slaughtering and eating a cow. Or for that matter, a pig. In fact, this reminds me of the great debate Johnny Carson used to always hold on his show. I don't know how that ever came up, but he used to have a running gag, it seems, on every so often about debating which is smarter, pig or horse. Someone would get on there and say, like, well, you can't get out of saddle and ride a pig. To which Carson would add, doesn't that just show the pig smarter? I don't know. If you feel strongly about this one way or the other, why don't you drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. All right, random item. I guess it must be number four. Two articles about the same phenomenon, one from Air and Space, which I believe is a Smithsonian publication, and also our favorite, New Scientist. Both pieces are about Felix Baumgartner and his upcoming effort to break the sound barrier with his body while simultaneously becoming the highest parachutist in the history of the world. One of these days soon, Felix Baumgartner is going to try and jump out of a balloon at 120,000 feet above the Earth, break the sound barrier on the way down, and I think the key part, land safely. Now, we made reference to this some time back on the program. We were under the impression that uh, retired Air Force Colonel Joe Kittinger, one of only three people to ever survive a skydive for more than 70,000 feet and the current record holder at 102,800 feet, broke the sound barrier on the way down, but we were apparently mistaken. Now, Felix Baumgartner has hired Joe Kittinger to help him in this effort. And this is admittedly uh, the kind of activity that doesn't attract a whole lot of participants. The main reason being perhaps that it keeps killing people that try. After Kittinger set his record in 1960, a couple of Soviets tried to break it, one of whom's pressure suit was breached and he was dead by the time he got to the ground. Of course, the other still holds the record for the longest free fall without the assistance of a drogue chute, 80,300 feet. But the most curious character in this, uh, this adventure was a man named Nick Piantanita, a New Jersey truck driver and daredevil who dabbled in exotic animal dealings and decided after his very first skydive in 1963, that he would try and break Kittinger's record. With what is described as very little parachuting experience and even less technical knowledge, he set about raising money and finding experts who would show him the way. Piantanita was described as having some flaws, such as his refusal to set up an organizational structure to have anybody there who had the power to tell him, you can't go. Kittinger refused to join Piantanita's team for that very reason, although he'd been asked several times. And as it turned out, uh, Piantanita had some bad habits, such as opening his helmet visor to try and clear it from condensation. Apparently did that when he was at 57,000 feet. Couldn't get the visor closed again. And this was a mistake he'd been warned about many times. And the injuries he suffered in that decompression proved fatal. It's curious to note that prior to this, Nick Piantanita had... Um, in the course of setting that record for the highest balloon ascent by a human being, well, he wasn't able to get off a skydive because he couldn't uncouple his oxygen hose. And in the middle of this damned-if-you-do and damned-if-you-don't situation, Piantanita's flight director, Ed Yost, decided to separate the balloon from the gondola by remote control and bring him down under the 15-meter cargo parachute, which was attached to the top of the gondola. 
The only problem was that nobody had ever tried anything remotely like that before. But, but evidently, by hanging on for his dear life, he made it back to the ground safely that time. It's a curious business, jumping from over 100,000 feet, and we recommend you check out some of the photographs of this activity, which are on the various websites. And when Baumgartner gets around to trying this, we'll, of course, report on it, no matter what happens. And we're keen on the weeks to come to report on the activities of the Mars Curiosity rover, which is setting off to explore the Gale Crater on Mars. This, by the way, marks the first time that uh, something on another planet has a specific goal set out before it. Very Star Trekian. All right, in the approximately one minute we've got left, we would note that death penalty uh, opponents over in Norway must be awfully proud of their efforts, which include the fact that Anders Bering Brevik was sentenced uh, last week to 21 years in prison for killing 77 people. If you do the math, it works out to about 99 days per murder victim. I've heard of people doing more time for possession of pot. We'll have to take a look at that again as the November ballot includes an anti-death penalty uh, initiative here in California. But I think final item of the day has to be the following. This is random number six, five, I don't know, I lost track. But uh, again, this just shows that we have a legal system that you know you just couldn't be prouder of here in America. Piece by Ryan J. Foley from the Sacramento Bee, Dateline, Iowa City, Iowa. A fugitive doctor charged the nation's largest prosecution of internet pharmacies is getting off, in part because there's just too much evidence. More than 400,000 documents and two terabytes of electronic data that federal authorities say is expensive to maintain. Armando Angulo was indicted in 2007 in a multi-million dollar scheme that involved selling prescription drugs to patients who were never examined or even interviewed by a physician. A federal judge in Iowa dismissed the charge last week at the request of prosecutors who want to throw out the many records collected over the nine-year investigation to free up space, which they're going to fill up with what? More evidence to prosecute people? At least until at such point it becomes too unwieldy? No, Doc, we're going to have to let you go. We've just got too much incriminatory evidence against you. All right, how about this random item and final bit of good news? Piece from Sacramento Bee, August 16th, by Mark Stevenson notes that illegal logging has practically been eliminated in the western Mexico wintering grounds of the monarch butterfly, according to a research report released earlier this month by the Mexican government. The government, environmental groups, and private donors have spent millions of dollars to get residents of forest communities in the Butterfly Reserve to plant trees and start ecotourism businesses to benefit from widespread fascination with the monarch's yearly multi-generational migration through Canada and the U.S. and Mexico. That's good news indeed. And of course, the monarchs also come locally to Pacific Grove, California, down by Monterey, an event which we have not heretofore covered on Radio Parallax, but which, 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 which I think we're going to have to devote some attention to. But anyway, with all this bad news coming out of Mexico, we want to say good job on the butterflies, guys. Muy bueno. All right, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We now sign off early and turn you over to the capable hands of the KDBS Sports Department for some Aggie football. We'll see you next week. Go Ags!